Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 36. Brian Duffy describes his Glasgow childhood as a tour of the city's housing schemes, which is quite a stretch from his current role as CEO of the luxury brand Watches of Switzerland. The story of how he got there, which includes launching the Playtex Wonderbra in the UK, working with Ralph Lauren and serving as a director with his beloved Celtic football club, is highly entertaining and full of unassuming but hard-earned wisdom. I enjoyed meeting up with Brian at the Watches of Switzerland headquarters in London. Brian Duffy, CEO of Watches of Switzerland, great to see you. Okay, nice to be here. Now, Brian, the, the world that you inhabit now is, is very different to the one that you originally grew up in, in Glasgow. Can you tell us a bit about how life started for you? Uh, in uh, you know, house and scheme of Glasgow, uh, Castle Milk was actually one of the, uh, I think at the time, was the biggest housing scheme in Europe. Um, I remember it as a very happy place, uh, actually, um, but I, I, I generally lived around the housing schemes of, of Glasgow until you know, adult until working, and uh, so Castle Milk, uh, Ballarock, and uh, and Ballarock. Do you th- do you think that that instilled any particular qualities or characteristics in you that have stood you in good stead in your, your business career? But I mean, inevitably, everybody's hugely influenced by their childhood and, and all of what it meant. Um, and you know, to state the obvious, when when you grow up with uh, with very little. Um, then I think that does give you a drive and a motivation to, to succeed. Um, I think also there's an element of, um, you know, as you get on in management, do I belong here? Um, you know, because again, it's not, I often say that yeah, I was the first to wear a tie and, uh, to go to work in my, uh, in my family. Ties were reserved for the weddings and funerals for the, my family. So I did find myself in unfamiliar uh, circumstances and, and um, you probably, as a result, I probably, and I think typically, um, work harder to prove that you belong uh, mm-hmm. overall. So I think those things were a, um, certainly motivating factors. Would have been the same if I was brought up in an affluent, I think probably yes, uh, overall, but, um, uh, but I think some of the, the background things are obvious. The other thing I often say too is that, um, you know, I, I turned out to be pretty good in brand management and marketing, and I think being... Uh, uh, Scottish helped on that because um, we're naturally, if we're being positive, we're naturally inquisitive. If you've been negative, we're naturally nosy. Mm. Uh, but we, we really want to know about people uh, that we meet. You know, no taxi driver lets you just sit there without grilling you on where are you from and what, who are you here to see and whatever. So the fundamentals of marketing is trying to understand people and what motivates them. So I've always thought that Scottishness kind of helps. The, uh, this is quite a, a deep question to throw in early on, but uh, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome now, which <coughs> didn't really exist as, as, as something that talk, people talked about in business 20, 30 years ago. Is, is that something you, you can relate to, or is, did you always have that sense that you, you belonged in this place and you could prove yourself? Um, I mean, it's a very good and, and deep question. I think, I don't know, in Scotland, I think we often say that the well-balanced Scotsman's got a chip in both shoulders. And, um, and I do think we have this need to continually prove ourselves. Um, you could go really deep and say, is that because we live in the shadow of, a, of another big nation that then we're always trying to assert our identities and so on? Um, 
but I think it does result in a, a healthy element, a kind of self-doubt, which I think is a positive thing, uh, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing I hate more than people that kind of take their position for granted and feel that they're entitled. Right. Um, and I think I, and again, I think it's a bit of Scottishness, you know, always felt I had to really kind of run hard to prove that I belonged. And I was always proving it to myself, first and foremost, and, and then hopefully, hopefully in the process, proving it to others. So back to when you were leaving school and you you trained as, an, as a chartered accountant uh, yep. initially. Uh, where did you see your, your future career lying at that stage? Um, you know, I've, I've, always, I've never looked that far ahead. Um, I've always had opportunities that came along, maybe even a wee bit before I was necessarily you know, looking for them. So I've never had to kind of plan a career, never planned to leave Scotland particularly. Um, but the opportunity came up, came along. I mean, getting into accountancy was was funny. We had careers officers back then. I don't even know if they still exist now. Uh, but I think my interview with a careers officer was probably about three or four minutes, uh, during which we ascertained that I was good at maths, uh, generally speaking. And I'd had a summer job. I'm a steel stockholder in, the, in, um, in Cowlairs in, the, in Glasgow. And I'd kept the books. And they said, did you enjoy that? And... I said, yeah, it was fun. So that was it. I was going to be an accountant, was the conclusion. And uh, back then, um, it was quite easy to get an apprenticeship as a, an accountant. You literally were, were working for nothing. So it was obviously easy to get. And uh, it was the old-fashioned system of you were an, an indentured mm-hmm. um, apprentice uh, at the time. So that set me off. And I, I, I loved the idea of becoming a chartered accountant. So I had a very of exotic, you know, feeling of success and status uh, about it. Completely misplaced uh, impression, obviously. Um, but anyway, I loved uh, I, I, I accountancy. It seemed a strange thing to say, but I kind of loved the career and, and the learning. You know, it was five years apprenticeship with uh, all of the exams and, and the education that went with it. And, uh, and I did enjoy it. And, and I enjoyed my first part of my career that was all in finance. And uh, were your parents quite proud of you? I, oh yes, of course. Um, uh, my parents were Mary and Joseph, uh, by the way, so that, that, uh, that gives the life of Brian a bit more significance. Um, but uh, I mean, honestly, they the loved mum, mum and dad. They both passed away just a couple of years ago in their nineties. Um, but they had no real understanding of kind of what my career entailed. But they were they were proud of whatever it was, and uh, and obviously. You know, the success and, and kind of what that brought for, for my family, for them, and the, and so on. So yeah. So in that early stage of your your accountancy career, you were KPMG, and then you went to to work in uh, a Polaroid in, in Glasgow. Yeah. What, what what did you learn from that stage in your career? Um, Polaroid were a client of uh, of KPMG, so that's how that opportunity came about. I, I'd always said uh, that I was going to move into industry and uh, and, and not stick with the profession. And I think I'd made that clear even to the, the partners at Pete Marwick, as it was then. And um, so this opportunity came up to join their biggest client, uh, who were Polaroid at the time, down in Vale of Leven, uh, near Dumbarton, um, employing over 2,000 people. Um, so it was great. It was a, a real change in content because you moved from you know, audit and, and uh, tax and so on. You moved into you know, management accounting and... Um, you know, capital analysis and and, uh, and understanding engineering and, and, and so on. And it was a big American company. And uh, actually up until my 
current role, I've only ever worked for American uh, companies, so my management ethos is, is, is very much kind of stateside uh, overall. And, uh, and I loved it, you know, at a young age, I travelled quite often to, to Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they were based, and they were a great company, uh, actually, Polaroid. And then, and then there was a, a really big move for you, as it turned out, moving to, to Playtex, the Playtex yeah. factory out at Port Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, and you know, looking at your CV, you became chief financial officer at the age of just twenty-eight, yeah. which is quite a feat. So, how did that, that all come about? But again, it's a great example of kind of right place, right time. It, some people might have said it wasn't an obvious move out the world of kind of quasi high tech into the world of ladies' underwear. Um, but uh, actually, when I met the people from Playtex, I was immediately impressed by how commercial they were. Um, and interestingly, the, the folks at Playtex, there was a, a lot of them had, uh, had trained at Procter & Gamble, so there was a real FMCG type approach, although technically it was, uh, it was apparel that you were dealing with. Um, so, but I, I liked it. It was, it was commercial, the role, um, whereas Polaroid would be manufacturing only. This was sales, and you were covering the whole gambit of business with a, a head office down in the Woking, with all the commercial. Uh, uh, people were based, and then we had a factory, six hundred people in uh, Port Glasgow, uh, up in the up in the hills. Um, but uh, yes, um, en enjoyed it. Enjoyed all the commercial analysis we were doing. Worked hard at it, and uh, then uh, my boss, the um, CFO, got promoted, and I was sitting in the right place at the right time, and uh, and they took a chance on me, I think, at 28. Right. Um, but uh, as far as I was concerned, I was more than ready. Mm. And um, seized so, it with both hands. Yeah. yeah. We get into a phase now where you're quite famous for launching the Playtex Wonderbra in the UK. After I've been the CFO of the UK, I got the opportunity of being the CFO of Europe. So I moved to Paris. Um, uh, often saying it's true, I, I went back and told my wife we're moving to Paris um, yeah, because I, I knew she would want to, of course. Uh, but with three young kids, I, and I got offered the, the opportunity. So by then I'm 31, and um, and I'd said yes before I'd even gone home mm. and, and told Helen, but I, I knew she would love it. So we moved to Paris, we were there for three years. How did, how um, did you find that in terms of lifestyle and well, family settling in? What wonderful. Um, my kids went to the British school, we lived out in the western suburbs. I threw myself into learning French. Um, I often say it's because people who thought they were bilingual <laughs> then met me and, uh, and I have a Scottish accent now which is uh, much, much stronger even back then but I did want to learn French in any event and I was the only non-French in the office uh, actually but, and my office was in the, the 8th uh, arrondissement and um, centre of Paris so I absolutely loved the experience it was a great time in France as well if you, if you think back in it's a wonderful country, and back then, you know, everything was was booming, and mm. standard living was uh, was very very high. Uh, our fourth um, uh, child was born there, and uh, Paul Andre, who's uh, who's now over thirty, but he was born when we lived in Paris. So we had a wonderful time, and you know, got to know Europe as well because whenever there was a break, we'd kind of drive somewhere across Europe, and and professionally you know it really broadened my experience hugely mm -hmm. uh, because we had, we had subsidiaries all over europe that we were responsible for and um so now that was great prof professional development as well while i was there the management buyout happened right. um, and we we had been part of what was one of the world's biggest buyouts because we were ultimately bought by a beatrice foods and uh, some financial folks will might recollect it was um 
KKR in their early days, now one of their first transactions, seven billion dollar transaction. So we had been part of that, and then a buyout was done um, to take the Playtex business out from that group, make it entirely independent. Um, and I got the opportunity of becoming the CFO of, uh, of this new business. So by now I'm 34, so still pretty young for, uh, for that responsibility. Um, so uh, we then went to Connecticut and mm. uh, to, to start life there. Um, and that too was a wonderful experience. Um, I often say I was too young to realise how stressful it should have been uh, because we had a lot of uh, debt that we had to manage. Right, right. It was up to me and my team to do that. Uh, manage profit, you know, manage after tax profit. I mean, so we, we get very involved in the business mm. uh, because we, we really had such a tough financial, you know, covenants and criteria mm. that I had to comply with. But again, wonderful experience, you know, got to know our businesses and, the, and got to travel to them and understand them in Canada and Mexico and Puerto Rico and Australia and, uh, and so on. So it's a great global experience again. And uh, and then back in the US, you know, managing all this, you know, financial um, pressures that were on us, but it was all very successful, uh, despite the fact that uh, there was a recession, a global recession. We were back in the late eight, late eighties, uh, early nineties, but despite that, our business did very well and eventually sold out at um, a, a good value to the Sierra Lee Corporation. So, but at that time, a lot of the excitement of finance. Had a, a would effectively go because we were going to become mm. part of a big corporation, okay, right. regular reporting, a spell on a time up and down to Chicago, uh, integrating our business with uh, uh, with the, uh, with Sierra Lee. Uh, but once that was done, it was pretty clear to me and and those around me that you know that finance wasn't wasn't really going to be. I wasn't going to move to Chicago. I wasn't going to move to a big corporate office. So I'm, I'd always been talked to about moving into general management. So mm. I decided at that point to do it. Uh, we also, my wife and I, wanted to get back to the UK. Our parents were getting older and mm. and uh, so on. And we had to decide, is America going to be our life or, or are we going to go back uh, back home? We didn't quite go back home. Uh, we came back to Surrey, to the head office I mentioned actually in, the, in Woking. Mm. And I started my uh, uh, role thereafter as a, as a CEO with a huge emphasis on brand marketing. Um, certainly, um, had for many, many years owned the Wonderbra company. Uh, they had licensed the name to another UK player uh, called Gossard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the business was relatively small for what it became, but still was doing pretty well. And I, uh, I didn't like the idea of a competitor having what was one of our company's uh, assets. So I negotiated, it was actually owned by the Court Halls Group, and uh, I negotiated getting it back. And they uh, launched uh, the one and only Wonderbra right. uh, back yeah. in uh, when when are we now nineteen ninety three? Right. I think uh, we launched it. Something it would have been hard to imagine you doing when you were first training as an accountant in, yeah. in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you really enjoyed that the marketing side of the job. Yes, right? yeah. yeah. And it, it turned out it, it, I was probably more natural as a marketeer than uh, than than, uh, than even in finance. Um, I did, and it very much was 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 learning on the hoof uh, overall, um, because it became a different kind of uh, marketing. A huge emphasis on on PR uh, actually, um, and um, using PR as a key ingredient. So getting a lot, lots of big mix. headlines in the yeah. press, yeah. Which it turned out, looking back at it, was really easy. 
you you get either Hertz or Goal in their mm. underwear. Mm. So chances are people are going to want to put that in their pages. And then if you put a business spin on it, it wasn't a spin, you put business information around it, then uh, it gave the FT the legitimacy of, of mm. having the, you know, that wonderful photograph of Hello Boys and, and Eva and so on. Um, but it was amazing, the, uh, uh, the coverage and so on we got. Within six months, the coverage the, that we got from the campaign, the famous Hello Boys campaign, uh, was measured as being worth 20 million. And we spent 160,000 on the ad campaign and, and the advertising value of the mm. PR that we kind of got for nothing was, uh, was valued at 20 million. So, so it was something different. Um, it, it led me to be giving interviews, uh, TV, uh, radio, mm. and many, many press interviews talking about why women found uh, looking sexy in their underwear something that was really appealing that turns out somehow it was qualified for <laughs> <laughs> Probably a bit easier to do then, is it? Now they've been this, yeah. you have to be killing. A lot, at the time there was a lot of political correctness around as well mm. and um, and the underwear industry that you know I'd, I'd spent a lot of years in with Playtex um, had somehow or other managed to overlook the fundamental of sex appeal and um, right. and that's what Wonderbra was all about. Mm. I look good. I feel confident. I feel great. And you know, hello boys. Yeah. So I mean, stock is continuing to rise here. And you that you then took it on another CEO role within within Sarali. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, Sarali were a huge conglomerate then, and uh, and and now uh, they were a twenty billion conglomerate back when twenty billion was a lot of money. And um, uh, they were the world leader on underwear. They were also the world leader on uh, on hosiery. So I took over all of the hosiery businesses for uh, for Europe, um, and then led the acquisition of uh, Courtauld's, uh, who were um, the biggest UK manufacturer of, of apparel for a, um, in total actually, and uh, specifically for a, for M and S. Um, so uh, it, it was a it was a big role, huge manufacturing emphasis, big manufacturers in the UK, and progressively uh, overseas, both in North Africa, Morocco, and in the, and in China. So, so I formed a group called Serly Courtauld's and uh, and ran that. It was about a billion pounds worth uh, back then, slightly more, um, and ran that for uh, for a couple of years. Right. And then what happened next? Because you took a rather unusual uh, next step in terms of broadening your musical talents. Yeah, um, again, circumstances and how you react to them. Um, I did have a disagreement with the Cerali about, uh, about strategy. Um, you know, I think subsequent events kind of proved me right on it for, for whatever that's worth. But, um, but I had a fundamental disagreement with kind of how we were being pushed to, uh, to run the business in Europe and that um, led to me leaving. Um, we'll never know whether I, I was pushed or whether I jumped or not. One way or another, I left and uh, that was in um, uh, June 2002. And um, I was conscious that I didn't want to be... And then it's like, what happens next? You know, you've been, you've been hard at it. You've you know, been really focused on your career. It's all going great. And then you find yourself in the back garden, you know, kind of wondering. Mm. Uh, what what comes next? So I didn't want to do that for a long period, nor did I want to jump into something that kind of wasn't right. Mm. So I concluded, and I've given this advice to a lot of people uh, since that, that when you find yourself in those circumstances, find something to do that makes you feel good about uh, 
about yourself. Um, lots of people say things like, if I ever get the chance, I would love to, mm. you know, go hell walking in Nepal or, or take up the violin or learn Chinese or whatever. But in my experience, very few people do it, you know, because you find yourself in circumstances that you then are preoccupied or, you know, with what comes next or whatever. So I did decide to do something and, and I, I decided to go back to college and study music. I played guitar like most children of the 60s, you know, that, mm. uh, I, uh, I played all the Dylan and Be Beatles songs and all that, uh, but never all that well. Um, so um, so I decided to do a, a degree down in uh, Guildford in contemporary music and kind of rock and blues and whatever. Yeah. So I started that degree in the, the September 2002 and it was, it was to have been a two-year degree, but I never quite got it finished. Because business intervened, presumably, but what? Yes. But you enjoyed it, and what? So I mean, apart from it. you mentioned Dylan and Beatles. I mean, what? What are your other musical influences? Uh, I mean, blues is the thing that I really enjoy. It's great to play, first of all. Um, but I love the sentiment and a lot of blues, and love the history of you know people the the Mississippi Delta and mm. and what it meant and how people really got an escape in music and a way of expression, expressing their their personal experiences, their, their political views of what was going on. And uh, so I, I really loved uh, blues um, overall, and it is my favourite uh, genre. But I've got a pretty eclectic taste in music. I love country music, right. uh, for example, which is kind of storytelling, but of a, of mm. a different uh, depth, if you like. Uh, but very, very kind of melodic and, and fun. So. Um, so, yeah, uh, and I love a lot of modern music, love rap. Um, overall, so storytelling uh, again. Yeah, storytelling yeah, again yeah, of a different yeah. uh, nature. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, what was it then that lures you away from this uh, enjoyable respite? So, um, I, I'd I'd looked to do a few things. Um, uh, I loved the college, um, but I, I I used to have weeks when I would spend the the mornings at college and then go back and put my suit and tie on and go and meet bankers or headhunters or whatever. And um, but the the other good thing about doing something you enjoy in those circumstances is it has to be something really appealing to make you give it up, um, and that's what happened. So in in the spring of uh, of '03, along came the opportunity to um, uh, to become the president, the first president of uh, Ralph Lauren uh, for Europe, and I loved the brand. That it, it, it was always my favourite brand, and. Um, and you know, fortunately, after after a series of interviews and back and forth, uh, I got offered the job and joined them in the Juno Three. But so what did that? What was that like then? Working working with him, the man himself. Um, it was it was terrifying at first, um, and it was um, you know we mentioned music and rap and so on. And uh, Ralph actually didn't want me um, because I didn't come out of luxury. So we talked. I was an accountant first of all. But you couldn't get further away from uh, from how Ralph saw life as an accountant, um, and then you know, kind of basic commodity products with you know hosiery and underwear and so on. Anyway, nothing that would have qualified me for his world as far as he was concerned. And um, but the management uh, back then really did want me to join because they had just taken on a lot of businesses in Europe. They were having difficulty integrating them all, so they needed uh, an experienced international. Uh, business guy with, with a good background in finance and systems and whatever that's what they, they saw as attractive in me I spoke French and the head office was in Geneva so that, that was a plus uh, so I ticked a lot of those boxes but I didn't tick any of Ralph's boxes at all 
and uh, I was really having to convince him. And um, I think in my second uh, interview with him, I was trying to say, you know, I learn and I do learn, um, and it's uh, and he kept saying, you know, but how can you learn? To him, uh, a life in luxury was a vocation. You know, it wasn't something you kind of picked up as a career change. And eventually, out of frustration, I said, Ralph, stop. I said, you know, I know more about what it feels like to put on a bra than any woman you know. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, because I've had to think about it. And how hard is it? But I had to think about it because I had to think about what's motivating them and why they're going to buy my product more than anybody else. I said, so I'll figure this stuff out and, uh, and I'll figure your brand out, you know. But uh, it really broke me ice because he was, right, he was right. being so aggressive with me. And then we started talking about music, and then mm. and I remember him saying, what do you think of Eminem? <laughs> and I said, he's, he's a modern day poet. I said, I think he's a visionary. And it turns out, fortunately, Ralph loved Eminem as well. <laughs> so then you had these two old white guys, right, you know, yeah. um, sitting talking about the virtues of rap. But, um, so it became a good working relationship? Uh, yeah, although, actually, so what happened is, I did join them. Um, and when the, the last part of the anecdotes is, is he wanted a third interview. And I had told them um, to avoid uh, May 20th, 2003. Um, happens to be my anniversary, but that's not why. It happens to be why, when Glasgow Celtic were in Seville. And, um, and I say, you've got to avoid these dates because I'm going. And sure enough, I get the call. You know, Ralph wants to see me again. And I said, I told you I'm not coming. And so I didn't go. And um, obviously it all worked out. Um, and uh, I did go and see him a, a week or so later, but I risked... Uh, yeah, it's quite a bold thing to do. Yeah, Did, and, uh, was he deliberately just testing you? No, no, no. He, he didn't go. No, right. Nobody would have said to him, mm. "Brian's not coming because he's going to a football <laughs> match," and that would have been the end of it completely. Um, but as I explained to the uh, HR guys, sixty thousand of my closest family were getting right. together, and uh, I wasn't not going to be there. But, um, Which is uh, actually quite a good moment to talk about Celtic because yeah. uh, and and your memories of that particular day because. Not long after that, you became a director of Celtic Football Club. So, oh, a wee bit after that. So, I mean, so so I joined Ralph. I joined Ralph mm. in June '03. Um, was commuting to Geneva. Still, uh, right. my, my wife was looking after her dad, so we couldn't uh, we couldn't move. And a few years later, when her dad passed away, she didn't move over. Um, but I, I started what was nine years at Ralph, and um, right. and it wasn't until I actually got the opportunity from Dermot Desmond to, uh, to come on the board beforehand, but I was just so busy. And um, from a Geneva base, we were by then living in Geneva, um, you know, back and forward to, to Celtic. I just wasn't sure I was going to manage mm. to you know, have the time uh, available. Um, but I eventually left Ralph in 2012 mm. um, because I wanted to find an opportunity in private equity that I was going to be effectively running myself. and and something I could invest in, um, and that's when I was able then to, to say that if, if, if the opportunity was still there, I'd still right. like I so it was a yeah. bit after. So from that, the period with Rafa yeah. and Lorraine and moving into luxury, yeah. what did you learn from that role? Um, you know, what motivates people to spend more on products than, 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 and buying things out of desire rather than need to, you know, what's it all about? And to be successful in luxury, I mean, it seems obvious, you've got to ask a question, why would somebody spend 200000 on a watch or, or 20000 on a handbag or, or whatever? Uh, and you need to be able to come up with the right answer to, uh, because there are different motivations. Uh, some people just do it out of uh, a desire to, to have rarity, to have what's exclusive and different. 
Others do it because they, they want to show off their, their success. Um, others do it because they're just hugely attracted by you know beautiful aesthetic you know design mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. But you need to figure all that out, and you need to make mm -hmm. sure that that you're getting the product and presenting it and selling it in a way that's going to appeal to those groups. So, so um, I got to understand you know what it what it was. Um, got to understand that it's not about price fundamentally. Mm -hmm. It's about experience and exclusivity and so on. Right. So, uh, Celtic, so take yeah. us back to, do you remember your first, your first game at Parkhead? As a kid, yeah. Celtic St. Johnson, we get beat 1-0. Oh. Uh, yeah. uh, second game was Celtic Cowdenbeath. The first game, my, uh, my big cousin took me, actually, he was a bus conductor. And, um, and I went with a group of bus conductors, <laughs> I, I recall. And I always used to regard St. Johnson as a bogey team. Actually, the next round of the Cup, Celtic St. Johnson right. again, yeah. coincidentally. But I always regard them as a bogey team from that night. We get beat a lovely summer's night, I remember, but get beat one nothing. So what are, what are your, some of your, your favourite memories? Obviously, Seville, presumably, is going to be one, one but of them. The big memory, of course, was the Lisbon Lions in 67. Right. I think you're probably too young to remember all that, but uh, I was yes, 13. And um, to me, it was, just, it was all of your dreams come true that your team mm. had made it through to the final. And then uh, yeah, I can remember almost every minute of the game as if it was uh, yesterday, black and white television. Right. Um, my dad was sure at half time that we, we were, there was no way back. You know, we had uh, conceded a penalty, but we were nothing down to the most defensively gifted team that the world had ever known, Inter Milan. So how were we ever going to come back? But we were dominating. And uh, we continued to do it for the for the ninety minutes, and you know one two one. So, um, and, you know my heroes were Billy McNeil's always been my biggest mm -hmm. you know hero in football. There was arguably more gifted players in the team around, but to me he was, um, you know he was captain, fantastic, mm -hmm. and the way he led the team and seeing him there at the end holding up the cup and whatever. So, so for sure uh, Lisbon was the mm -hmm. uh, is the biggest memory. And uh, we had a real pleasure uh, just uh, two years ago of um, putting on a, a, a great uh, event down here in London at the Grosvenor where we celebrated the 50 years and, uh, and five of the Lions were down there and a wonderful celebration. Brilliant. So it must have been very exciting to become a director of a yeah. club you've supported all your life. How did the, the boardroom experience at Celtic compare to other boardrooms that you've sat in? Uh, actually much more formal. You'd be surprised to hear a uh, really, really well-run PLC. Um, John Reid was the chairman at first, and then, uh, and then Ian Bank here, and uh, on the latter part, and throughout the whole time, Peter Lowell, you know, is the as uh, the, the general manager uh, of it. But um, went through all of you would imagine PLC uh, committees and reporting, and um, and I was actually really impressed. I was I was learning. I'd never actually been. Um, on a PLC board, I obviously attended board meetings with Valve and presented to them and all that, but uh, I'd never actually been on a board, so that was my first experience of it. But uh, it's a very well-run business and um, you know very high kind of uh, level of you know compliance and uh, conduct, and, and obviously you know, then you are talking football for a good part of it. The highlight, of course, was when the manager came in and. You get a chance to chat about uh, what was going on, what his feelings were about the team or the games coming up or, or whatever it may be. It's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. uh, experience. And then having uh, done well at Ralph Lauren, you, you then moved to your, your current role CEO, which yep. is a Switzerland. So how did that move take place? So as I said earlier, I did want to move into private equity. I mean, Ralph was wonderful, but at the end of the day, head office was New York. 
um, you were having to really sort of cajole and push and whatever to get support for strategy, which is part of the job, of course. Um, but um, I, I wanted something that I was going to be much more, you know, invested in every way, but um, just with, with financial oversight, which is kind of what private equity is, but really my chance to just totally run the business the way I wanted to, and personally invest uh, as well. Um, I'd always liked watches, um, and I've looked at a few different opportunities, inevitably in fashion, uh, luxury fashion, there were opportunities. Um, but I, I never went for one until this came along. Um, liked the private equity group, Apollo. Um, liked the product for sure. Liked that it was UK and it was retail. Um, so, you know, um, so signed up in uh, late 13. Right. And, um, and uh, off we went. So what was the, the, the challenge that you faced? What did you set out to do? Uh, it, it was a business that um, had been through um, a lot of uh, changes in ownership. Um, we were part of the Bogger group, the, the Icelandic group that had been buying up all of, um, all of what there was in retail, Hamleys, House of Fraser, whatever, and they, they bought our group. They then went bankrupt for the crisis in 2008. Uh, the company then became owned by Landsbanki, um, who were also bankrupt as it happened, small Icelandic bank. Uh, then bought by Apollo, they had a, a kind of disappointing first year. All of that resulted in a period of underinvestment. And uh, this is an industry you have to invest in, you have to be make, doing beautiful stores, you're selling, you know, the average price of the product that we sell is around 5,000, which for anybody is a luxury experience. And we go from a thousand to a million, everything in between. So you need beautiful stores. Um, and you, you can't get by under investing. So that was a challenge that the business faced that we had to reinvest, we had to elevate. We also um, uh, very much saw uh, an opportunity for, for, for modernising in what was a very traditional industry. The industry had been uh, and remains to some degree uh, typified by a lot of small retailers, uh, but the world had moved on to expect you know, bigger and better presentation, to expect uh, a lot of digital presence, whether online or, or marketing, um, or direct, you know, email communication, that sort of thing, um, and it really wasn't being done, and that and that's what we've done. We invested in the store network, we invested in the marketing, or quite bold in our marketing, and obviously my background uh, um, has helped in all of that, and we really invested in technology, uh, big time, uh, digital communications, uh, SAP live inventory, moving stock around, being very, very reactive. And, and none of it's uh, totally innovative or groundbreaking, but for this industry, it, um, it's unusual because it's very traditional. So we've stood out as a, as a modern, technologically advanced right. retailer. Right. We haven't sacrificed in any way. In fact, we've built on the fundamentals of uh, customer service and, um, and we've had a great run. Okay. A lot of growth as well in, in the US. Yes, I mean, yeah. UK, we've kind of doubled the business mm. in the UK in that time. It's been a good sector to be in luxury mm. watches, and it's a, it's a Swiss monopoly overall, so it's, um, it's a um, protected uh, industry, if you want to look at it that way, uh, with a lot of barriers to entry, both on the brand side and the retailer side. Um, so, in that protected environment, we were able to really distinguish ourselves and, and grow so we kind of doubled the business in the UK and, and you know, kind of quadrupled our, our profitability. Uh, great support from Apollo, 
Uh, and in the meantime, we saw that the US market was um, even less well-developed than what we had been as a group, less well-invested uh, overall. We were actually invited to the US to, to look at some opportunities. Um, so it led to us eventually buying uh, two businesses, one Florida-based, one Las Vegas-based. And uh, since then we've opened a couple of stores in New York and uh, the whole US business is now heading towards 30% of, uh, of what we're doing in total. Um, we're almost a billion pound business now, that was around 200, 220 million when we started out, so very, very different. And then last uh, May, we took the big step, we're private equity owned, which means that we're going to be sold at some point. And, um, and that eventually became a sale onto the uh, public market when we went on the London Stock Exchange last May with an IPO. Um, was very successful. Um, we, we sold at the top of our range uh, at £2.70. We opened in day one at two ninety five, And here we are, uh, where are we now, seven, eight months later, we're at, uh, we're at 380 um, so we, we, we did a good, I mean obviously we've had a good track record and we've delivered on mm, you know, mm. the results that we uh, led people to expect from us and, and um, you know, that's getting rewarded with a good share price for continuing to grow well both in the UK and the, and the US. So something, something else that is, is growing rapidly is Apple Watches, I mean do you yeah. see any kind of threat or Im impact on your market or is it different? Uh, none at all. Um, and it's, it's something that's raised often and, and you know, I think Apple put out the stats to say that they're bigger than the whole Swiss watch mm. but the products have nothing to do with one another apart from being worn on the same part of your body when it gets down to you know, what one's a product that you know, has got hundreds of years of, of developed craftsmanship and heritage mm. um, uh, aesthetically beautiful um, technically wonderful uh, because it's all mechanical mm. and um, so the watch I'm wearing just now is an IWC flyback chronograph uh, and that and a, a chronograph is a completely separate mechanism from a regular watch so you you know because that's a stopwatch so you have a stopwatch mechanism that's managed to be placed inside effectively a, a regular mechanical mm. mechanism um, and with a flyback you've effectively got two chronograph measurements going on so all of that and, and I can understand it. I can look mm. inside and I can understand the, the gear trains that are driving mm. you know, different elements of what I'm able to see in the dial. So all, all of that craftsmanship, technical ability, micro-engineering, heritage, mm. uh, aesthetic, aesthetically uh, beautiful and so on. So I compare that then to an, an Apple Watch, which at the end of the day is plastic, it's disposable. Mm. You won't pass it on to your children, that's for sure. Um, as, but yeah, technically, it's, it's, there's, there's a functionality there that people mm. want. They want mm. to be reminded of an email, or yes. if they're not sure how well they slept. I mean, personally, I can figure it out by uh, by how I feel. But if you're not sure, your watch can tell you. And a lot of medical benefits and all that. I think it's kind of good for humanity, I guess, that people are able. But anyway, one's got nothing to do with the other. Yeah. One's less than whatever five hundred quid, and then as I said, what we sell is an average mm. of five thousand. And we actually have research that, that proves what we experience anyway, which says that only 1% of people who own both a luxury watch and a smart watch regard one as a replacement of another. Okay. Um, so a lot of people own yeah. both, and you one's for walking the dog and seeing how many steps you've taken, and uh, one's to impress your boss. <laughs> 
I mean, you, you clearly have a, a genuine passion for, for watches, and that comes out in, in the podcast that you produce, actually, yeah. for Watches in Switzerland. Quite unusual for a CEO to try uh, a podcast. How did that come about? Um, I mean, it, it's generally on the on history of watches, and um, this is a very, very technical area to come into, and once again, to go back to where we started from, I come into it saying I have to prove myself again, I have to learn, and and I throw and actually what what made me really throw myself into it um, was there was a we do a conference every year with Rolex, we're the biggest retailer of Rolex, um, and we do an annual conference with them, and myself and the MD of Rolex are the are the main sort of presenters, um, and I thought well, what am I going to talk about? You know, I'd only been a few months in, and uh, I'd been overwhelmed by product, you know, complexity and, and so on, and. Um, I, I have a chalet in Switzerland and I was there a few days before this and I threw myself into um, learning the history of Rolex uh, and it turned out that um, people really know the product very well but there's not the same level of knowledge on the history and the history is amazing I mean, uh, the history of Rolex founded in London in 1904 named Rolex in 1908 and there's a story behind how the name came about invented the first waterproof you know, uh, uh, watch um, uh, the first uh, automatic uh, watch in 1931, waterproof in 1926. Uh, and then what was going on in the world throughout their history is, um, I think, really fascinating. So uh, that's what's become my area of, uh, of expertise. Is, right. is, and I love researching the history of this, mm-hmm. particularly now online. Uh, but a lot of books around, as you can see some of them in here. Um, so and I, I love educating and self-educating, and that's become my specialist subject. If, right. uh, if Master yeah. never come calling, <laughs> it's the history of Swiss watches. Yeah. Well, there's a good tip for anybody listening who is interested in history of watches. What's the podcast called again? It's a uh, Watch of Switzerland Caliber podcast. Yeah, right. yeah. I've listened to it a couple of episodes. And it's very very entertaining. Even if you're not, even if you do like me, wear a Fitbit. I'm afraid I think I need to. Uh, we'll convert up, up you. things a bit. Can give us a half hour and we'll you. Very poor, so I couldn't yeah. cover this up with my my yeah, I've got a fit, but so I mean, you've obviously achieved a, a huge amount since since leaving school in Glasgow. All the different jobs you've been through. Do you have any unfulfilled business ambitions you'd like to to tackle? Um, well, I mean, I don't in any sense feel that I'm I'm kind of finished. I'm you know really enjoy what I'm doing here. Um, will this be the last? Possibly, but not certainly. I, um, I've, uh, I regret so far not having um, uh, started a Scottish brand, which I've thought about often. Um, I think there's a great deal of uh, value and attractiveness within the Scottish identity. Um, we have a great reputation uh, globally. Uh, we have a reputation for being you know, strong and, and um, straight-talking, mm. independent, ironically enough. Um, brave, romantic, mm-hmm. which uh, it's all there. And then when you look into fashion and apparel, obviously we got we get tartans and ferrules and so on. And and military is is a big inspiration for a lot of uh, fashion, particularly men's fashion. So there's, there's a lot there. Um, mm. And um, it, it, a Scottish, real Scottish fashion brand, I think, um, is kind of waiting waiting to happen. I, actually. Um, Registered a couple of names, uh, Bad Angus. Uh, I registered as a name just to give a kind of um, right. identity and personality to a kind of fashion range that, that I still someday mm-hmm. harbour the idea of uh, of doing. And more than anything, I'd like just to to prove it to kind of young people in Scotland that 
um, that brand, I think we tend to undersell ourselves in a lot of products. Um, there's some we don't, you whiskey, golf, whatever, we do mm. a really great mm. job of our luxury, but certainly in apparel, uh, our clothing, we, we undersell ourselves, right. and the big emphasis is always on the on cost and price. It's not on, on um, what Ralph used to call uh, charisma, you know, when mm. you get to, uh, and mystique uh, when you get to product. And you look at brands like Brunello, Cuccinelli in, in Italy, uh, mm. that's all based upon cashmere. And it's cashmere sweaters selling at £1,200 and so on. And right. So with the Scottish, Brunello Cuccinelli, mm. uh, we are selling cashmere, you know, folded in, in the huge tables and tourist shops in Edinburgh and Glasgow um, with a, you know, a big price banner on it and inevitably a discount. So, um, so uh, uh, getting brand and getting um, uh, brand equity and so on around the Scottish brand, I'd, I'd love to either help somebody do or right. uh, or, uh, uh, or, or, or be directly involved in so we'll see well, yeah it seems like somebody who's prone to idle pipe dreams so I think well, this is a space to be watched could be something happening yeah. and uh, yeah so if anybody's got uh, any fledgling luxury Scottish brands out there maybe it's, it's worth getting yeah. in touch with Brian um, you presumably spend most do you live in, in London? Or I live in London, yeah, I live in Richmond. Yeah. Yep. So this is, yep. this is home. How, how, how do you relax at the, the weekend? you still get the guitar out? I do get a guitar yeah. out. Um, we've, uh, we've a wee dog at home, my wife and I, so we're always walking the dog in Richmond Park at the weekend. Um, exercise uh, over the weekend. Uh, we've got five grandchildren, um, so I should have said them first, uh, actually, and, and we love spending time with, the, right. uh, with them. And uh, one of the days is involves at least some of them, uh, the grandkids, so more than enough to, to have a you know enjoyable, relaxing uh, weekend. Um, we holiday with the family when, whenever we can mm-hmm. uh, as well, so we're a very close family and, and that more than anything is what occupies your thoughts and your time. Right. And, and finally, just one little question for you, if you were to be able to give some advice to the young Brian Duffy uh, starting off in his career in Glasgow, what would um, we'll go back to our earlier comments. It would be confusing advice because I would say don't worry about it so much. Uh, but as we said earlier on, worrying about it, improving yourself probably is your biggest motivation at the end of the day. So I would uh, I'd totally confuse them. <laughs> Brian Duffy, thanks very much. My pleasure. There you go. The life of Brian, what an interesting guy. Thanks for listening and I'll be back again in two weeks' time. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.